week in and week out by those who lead us in worship through song. The title of the message this morning is I Am the Resurrection and the Life, Part 1. We continue through the Gospel of John. We find ourselves now in John 11. John chapter 11. There was another John throughout church history. His name was John Stott. Many of you would be familiar with John Stott. He wrote a wonderful book, The Cross of Christ. He also wrote a book for preachers um, called Between Two Worlds. Between Two Worlds. And not just preachers and pastors, but Christians. We really do live between two worlds. There's the old world of the Bible, John Stott wrote about, the old world of the Bible. And then there's the world of the present day. Uh, For us, we're modern listeners to a very old world. We live in a new world and we turn back to the old world for truth. The old truth found in the old world of the Bible brings us wisdom and grace into our modern life. John Stott labors in that book to exhort preachers to make sure that they are living between two worlds. The chief way we live between two worlds and preach so as to help our people who also, like us, live between two worlds. The chief way the Scripture does that is that because the old truth is the very living glory of God revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, well, by the pages of Scripture, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of all kings. And so, as we commence another chapter in this precious Gospel of John, we do move into an altogether new section of a very old world. My goal is always to bring the old world into our life and seek to apply it for us, and that'll be the goal here again this morning. It's a new section altogether, though. Last Lord's Day, we completed John 10. John 10, where Jesus gave His very final invitation, you recall, His very last come and believe invitation to the world, free offer of the gospel. And it's where His public ministry has ended. Yet, chapter 11, where we now find ourselves, Jesus will perform yet another sign, the seventh in this gospel, which is to say, what many say, is the greatest miraculous sign Jesus ever performed, the raising of a man by the name of Lazarus back to life. No other gospel other than John mentions this sign performed by Christ Jesus. And in John 11, this bringing Lazarus back to life, it really does serve as the crescendo of this gospel, of the gospel of John. What do I mean? Well, by now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know, I'm sure, the purpose of this gospel, given by John himself, John chapter 20, verse 30, that it was written so that the person may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, 
And that in believing that person would have life in his name. That's the purpose. And our focus this morning will be on the first 27 verses of John chapter 11. I can't promise at all. In fact, I know we won't get to verse 27 this morning. But verse 27 tells us that Mary, one of the three new characters that will be introduced to us today in this gospel, she says there in verse 27, after Jesus explains much about Lazarus, she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the goal of the purpose of the gospel is fulfilled in that. It's fulfilled in that and may it be fulfilled here this morning too. As perhaps you for the first time, come to true saving faith in this Messiah Christ, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And today you find true life in His name. It was for this very reason that the Apostle John penned this gospel that we look at week in and week out. And I want you to imagine for a moment, in your mind's eye, that this man, the Apostle John who lived a long life, exiled in the end on the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation that we read as we came around the Lord's table. I want you to imagine that he came here to church this morning. He walked in. He'd no doubt be more weathered than we are. And he walks in and he sits down. And because he walked in and he sits down, and we know that's the Apostle John, we invite him up to the front. Well, first of all, I'm sitting down and letting him preach. I know that for a fact. But I, I imagine he would say to all in attendance this morning something like, I wrote all that I did in this gospel so that you would trust in Jesus, who is the only Savior that the world has, he is the Messiah, and that in trusting in Him that He died for you on the cross, and that He rose again for you, that you would have true and lasting life in His name. That would be quite something if the Apostle John came in here and said that. And then before he was done, he added this, oh, by the way, as your pastor preaches from John 11, don't miss the real and ultimate reason for Jesus doing all that he did here in John 11, and that is the glory of God. I'm confident he would say such a thing. I'm not confident he would come to Riverbend Bible Church, but if he did, I'm confident he would say that. And then he just leaves and he goes back to the island of Patmos, just south of Bear Island on Waimarama, if you didn't know where it was. That'd be quite something to hear from the Apostle John. And aside from Patmos being here in the Hawke's Bay, what he said would be very true. And it reminds me that each time we come to this gospel corporately, or when you read it privately, we have to come, as I've said often, always looking at the words in this gospel through the lens of the 14th verse of the very first chapter which says, and you know this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. 
glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have to come always there. You see, while there is sin and salvation and suffering revealed to us in the Bible, certainly in John 11 as we look through it, the greatest theme, the the most grand and overarching theme in all of the Bible is the glory of God. That theme overrides, that theme undergirds, that theme overshadows all other themes in the Scripture. Behind all of who God is and what God does in this world, from the creation of this world and the universe to the salvation of some, His precious little flock, He called us in the Gospel of Luke, to the consummation of all things that we read from Revelation 21 when we came around the Lord's table, the things to come in the future, it is God's glory that matters most. And what exactly is God's glory? Well, in a way, God's glory is the sum and summation, or the, simply the summation of all of God's attributes, all of His perfections. You can think of those attributes and perfections. Which, by the way, are not multiple parts. God is not made up of different parts. God is simple. He is one. God's attributes and character make up God. They are all one and they pertain to His one holy name and His one divine essence. And so God's glory really is His name. His name is His character and His essence and His character and His essence is who He is. And who He is, is majestic glory, creator and sovereign, the holy one, the only Holy One in a plethora of supposed holy gods. The first Chronicles chapter 29, verse 13 says, Our God, we thank you and praise your most glorious name. God's glory, his name, his character, his essence. You know, when you read the Old Testament, speaking of the Old Covenant in those old times, was revealed primarily. In a cloud, wasn't it? Exodus chapter 16, verse 10, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 16 tells us that God revealed Himself, God made His glory known, His name, His essence, His character in a cloud by way of a cloud by day and then a pillar of fire by night. For who can see a cloud at night? God revealed Himself day and night. It was the way God made His presence known. You remember Moses in Exodus 33. He would pray to God, wouldn't he? What would he pray? Show me your glory. We have a longing to see the glory of God when our hearts have been changed, when we are the Lord's people. Moses asked to see God's glory. And do you recall how God did that? You remember? He passed by Moses. And as he passed by Moses, what did he do? He revealed all who he is, his attributes. He revealed his attributes, his perfections, who he is to Moses with these words, back to Moses' request. Moses says, show me your glory. Yahweh, the one true and living God, says this, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you 
You'll proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And so God's glory is revealed in His grace and compassion. His name is His glory, and His name is abounding in grace and compassion. And what makes the new covenant so abundantly glorious? Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul works to show how the new covenant is covenant is super abundantly more glorious than the old covenant. So much more glorious is that God's glory is no longer simply a cloud that passes by or words written on a stone. But God's glory is now seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. (laughs) And He upholds the entire universe by the word of Jesus' power, His power. That's an astonishing statement. Don't ever let Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 fall on a cold heart. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. (laughs) Colossians chapter 1 verse 5 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Don't let that one pass you by either. We cannot see the invisible. Anyone who says they can see the invisible is um, an interesting character. But Jesus means that we can see. We can see with the eyes of our heart, the eyes of faith revealed in the Word of God to us that the Son is the otherwise invisible God. And so God's greatest theme is His own glory. His own glory. It supersedes all others, as I said, even the grand themes of the kingdom of God, it supersedes that. It supersedes the salvation of His people, supersedes the new heavens and the new earth to come. They are all superseded by the glory of God. In Psalm 57, verse 11, David wrote, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Let the glory of God be above all things, which is to say, let Jesus Christ, His worth, His person, His work, His majesty be above all the earth, including all that goes on on the earth, which includes my daily life and your daily life and all the struggles and suffering and pain and joys and blessings in our daily life. And what I trust John 11 will do for us is call us to an invigorated sense of God's glory revealed to us in Jesus. And not only will it invigorate a sense of God's glory revealed to us in Jesus, it'll motivate us to appreciate so much more 
of His glory that is revealed to us. I think sometimes we don't understand what's been revealed to us. We're like someone who inherits a great amount of money, goes to the bank, has no idea what has been deposited to them, and then hears millions of dollars have been deposited to them. We're not aware of what we have been entrusted with, given. We have been clothed in the majestic righteousness of the eternal Son who Himself is abounding with glory and all the glory flows down into blessings and all the glory is for us to behold so that when we live these daily lives here on this earth, we're not left bankrupt and alone. Remember that John the Apostle began this gospel by saying to us in John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The one and only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The word there, He has revealed Him. And so we get the Father and all that He is through the Son. And considering that we are, according to Romans chapter 9, verse 23, it calls us, we are vessels of His glory. Having been saved through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which we have trusted in and rested in, we would do exceedingly well to always be giving thanks to the glory of God. And always living with the glory of God in our hearts and minds. And sometimes, if you and I are honest, we don't do that. We don't do that. We must do that in our lives. Because our lives include true and genuine pain, suffering, sickness, and death. We're just wading out again into John 11 this morning. We're in the gospel of John. In the epistles, most Sundays as we work through an epistle is law command, law command, law command, and the sermons are very different. As we go through a gospel narrative, the gospel, particularly John's gospel that Calvin said is the very soul of Jesus. The other gospels give us Jesus' arms and feet and the gospel of John gives us Jesus' very soul. As we go through the gospel of John, we are flooded with love and grace so as to fulfill those commands that are in the epistles. And anywhere they're found through the kindness of God to call us to holy living. But John 11 will teach us that our lives include true and genuine pain and suffering, sickness and death and how are we to live to the glory of God in that. John 11 contains the sign of Lazarus being raised to life, but it contains so much more than that. It is the seventh sign, as I said, in the gospel. You remember that the apostle John called them signs, not miracles. He didn't use the word miracles. He used the word signs because signs signify something beyond the sign itself. It points to something greater and deeper than the miraculous. And nothing is greater than the concept of God's glory being revealed and God's glory being shown forth. 
God's glory is revealed to us. And then in our sickness and death and suffering, we show forth God's glory. The God of glory has called us to live for his glory. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do from any meaningful task to all the difficult tasks in life, all the battles that you have, you and I are to live for the glory of God. We are to do all things to the glory of God. Seventh sign, we're going to read it in a moment. The first sign was in John 2, you remember, when Jesus turned the water into wine? You remember what the apostles said about that? Why Jesus did that? Was it so they could enjoy Sarah and Shiraz and Pinanoir? No, no. You know, remember what John said of that? He said it was done to manifest the glory of God. The second sign was in John 4, where Jesus healed the nobleman's son, who was near death. Third sign was in John 5, where Jesus healed the man who had been lame by the pool for almost 40 years. Fourth sign, John 6, where Jesus fed 20 plus thousand people with just a few loaves and a few fish, and they were all full. Fifth sign was again in John 6, Jesus walked on the water. Sixth sign was John 9, where our good friend, that blind man, he was given sight, and this is the seventh now. All of those signs were to the glory of God. In a display of the glory of God, to the praise of the glory of God, all pointing with this giant neon light hand pointing to Jesus Christ, saying, He is God in the flesh. He has come to dwell amongst us. He is full of grace and truth. He is God's glory revealed. He is God revealed to us. And all through this gospel, as those signs have been performed, they were blazing forth the light of God's glory while the deep darkness of religious hostility and hatred toward the light of the world has been just as visible. In fact, the shining glory, the radiance glory of the Lord Jesus so far in the Gospel of John has been, as has been well said, set in the backdrop of the hostility and hatred of religious people. Leaders, corrupt, thieves and robbers. That darkness revealed in these unbelieving hearts of the religious leaders and the general public has meant confrontation. It has meant controversy for our Lord. It'll go on to mean controversy for anyone who follows the Lord. Read the book of Acts. And all of that confrontation and controversy culminated last Lord's Day, as we saw, where they were trying to seize Jesus up on Solomon's portico, you remember. But Jesus would evade their grasp and his public preaching and public ministry would come to an end. Well, John chapter 11, I want you to know, and John chapter 12 have been rightly understood to be the bridge between the end of Jesus' public ministry and what we know as and what we call His passion. Chapter 11 and 12 are the bridge between the end and the passion. That is those final moments of His earthly life. And so we've still got a lot of the Gospel of John to go. From John 13 to 
John 21, which I'm very excited for because I simply don't know of any portion of Scripture more majestic than that, particularly the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 11 through to John 17. All of this is glory revealed, glory to grasp, glory to behold, and glory to be blessed by. Speaking of glory, just as the Apostle John, who would have told us, should he have come here this morning, our passage this morning really does have God's glory at the heart. And I want to tell you before we read this passage where we'll be heading, but again, we're not going to cover all of this this morning. In the first 27 verses of John 11, which forms one unit, we will see, number one, if you're taking notes, glory revealed through love in verses 1 to 6. And then second, we will see glory revealed through care in verses 7 to 16. And then third, to wrap up those opening 27 verses of John 11, we will see third, glory revealed through life. Love, care, and life. And so with that little framework in your mind, let's finally read our passage and then ask the Lord to bless us and aid us. And so follow along with me in your Bibles, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Verse 17, 
So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives will believe in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Just amazing. Let's pray. Father, we too often take for granted your precious word. In our relationships, we long for communication. Sometimes we are poor at that. Sometimes we fail at that. Sometimes we are wrong in that. And yet, Lord, you have perfectly, clearly, wonderfully communicated to us and too often we neglect it. How can we expect to live for your glory when we neglect where your glory is revealed and where we are to behold your glory so as to be transformed from one level of Christ-likeness to the next by the Lord that is the Spirit? Father, forgive us. Lord, too often we're like Peter who received rebuke from your son for too often setting his mind on things on this earth and not on the things of God. Forgive us, Lord. Father, too often we live for our own glory. Have mercy upon us. Lord, Father, too often we make light of the riches and kindness of your love toward us. Too often we fail to lay hold of what you have entrusted to us. Would you change us, please? Please change us. We pray in the one who can change us. King Jesus. Amen. The first thing I want us to think upon is that when the Bible speaks of resurrection, it does so either speaking of the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection that Martha referred to. The resurrection to come on that day where we will all be resurrected, some unto eternal life and some unto death in judgment. And so resurrection is used theologically in the scripture, if you will, to reveal to us a doctrine. 
Resurrection is used in the Bible to refer to not simply being brought back to life, but receiving a glorified body and being either in eternal glory or in eternal hell. In the joy-filled peace of eternal glory or in the agonies of hell, all will receive a resurrected body, a glorified body. And so in that sense, even though Sunday school and common thought would think of John 11 being about the resurrection of Lazarus, it's really more accurately about the restoring of Lazarus back to life. As for resurrection in the theological sense, only Jesus has been resurrected and received a glorified body and entered back into eternal glory as the God-man. And what an ascension that was and is. Enoch, for example, who we know walked with God and God took him, he didn't die and then be resurrected. And so you could make an argument there that Enoch's soul went to be with God and not his body. After all, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus and Jesus alone is the first fruits of resurrection. And it's important that he is the first fruit of resurrection because he alone is in glory. He alone is in is the resurrection and the life and we'll see the truth of that later on in John 11. But it's not wrong to say Lazarus was resurrected. That's not what I'm saying. I just want to begin to show you some of the theological implications that will be to come with that profound statement from Jesus in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus lived and died and then lived again here on earth. He was caught up, if you will, in what is the fifth I am statement of the gospel of John. We've gone through four of those so far, and here is the fifth one. You recall that whole idea. I don't know how you need to go on again about it so much. <clears throat> Jesus would repeatedly use what is called the tetragrammaton, that is the Hebrew phrase Yahweh. Yahweh disclosed himself in the Old Testament by saying, I am who I am. Yahweh, the name of the one true and only God. Jesus would inject that into his claims during his earthly ministry. Five of those, as I said in the Gospel of John, and he says them like here because he wants us to see that he is God of very God and glory of very glory. You know them. I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am the door, John 10. I am the good shepherd, John 10. And then here in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I am a claim to being Yahweh, a claim to being the glory of God revealed to us, the very essence and character of God to us. And as we look at this, it is, this passage, so much more than simply Jesus, uh, Lazarus being brought back to life. It is deep, it is rich, it is practical, and so let's dive right in. Heading number one, glory revealed through love. Look at verse one. There was a certain man, and he was sick. His name was Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary 
and her sister Martha. So three people, three new characters introduced to us now. We see Jesus' relationship to each of these three characters. By the way, they are real people and they lived on earth. John tells us exactly who they are in those two opening verses. Verse 2, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was Lazarus, who was sick. Interesting about verse 2, the events of Mary anointing the Lord with ointment actually doesn't come until John chapter 12. John the Apostle is being very kind to us here. He's, he's, he's telling us, man, there's a, there's a lot of Marys and Marthas. And he's telling us which Mary this is. So we have here Mary and Martha who are sisters and Lazarus is their brother. Three siblings. Siblings that are all living in a house in Bethany. And like many households, things are not perfect. We've got a number of households here in our church. There wouldn't be anyone who could say, things are perfect in my household. They haven't been, they aren't, and the Lord knows they won't be. Far from it, in fact, for this household, three siblings living in a house in Bethany, because sickness has arrived. Sickness. Happens in life, doesn't it? Sickness arrives in our homes and sickness arrives in our lives. Sometimes the sickness comes and goes, sometimes the sickness stays. Various forms of sickness, different levels of debilitation. Some are visible before the watching eye. Others suffer with things you cannot see. Sicknesses in our life, in our homes. And it's arrived here in this home. And Lazarus is very sick. He doesn't just have the flu, he is close to death. Some even argue due to the day's travel to Bethany and then all that goes on with the logistics of the sisters sending a messenger and then the two days the, the two days delay from Jesus and all that, some go to, to say that while Jesus spoke what he did here at the beginning in verse 3, that Lazarus was already dead. You see, when we think of Bethany, when we see that title Bethany, there are actually two Bethanies, two places called Bethany. One is just beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist ministered. And if you're paying attention, you'll know that John chapter 10 ended with Jesus being where John administered. And then there's another Bethany. Because if it was just in that first Bethany, there wouldn't be delays. Jesus would have just delayed maybe going down the road. But there's another Bethany and it's in Judea, which is in Jerusalem, which is Jerusalem. And so these sisters are deeply troubled by their brother's health. He is very, very sick. And so they send a messenger to Jesus. And look at what the sisters say to Jesus in verse 3. Lord, behold. That means, Lord, pay attention, please. Lord, do not just brush past what we're saying. Behold, he 
whom you love is sick. There are several words for love, aren't there, in the original Greek language? This one here is the word phileo. You hear Philadelphia. You read about the church of Philadelphia. They were commended for their love. It's the word for a deep brotherly love. And that's really all they say. They don't say anything else. They send a messenger, a day or longest travel, with like a little tweet-sized message that just says, the one whom you love is sick. No name, no added detail, no please come, hurry. Just the one whom you love is sick. This implies a few things. This is fun to think about. This implies that this household was really, really good friends with Jesus. This implies that Jesus was friends with them. And this reminds us that while we have four Gospels that tell us so much about the life of Jesus, there is so much about the life of Jesus that we don't know. I mean, John, enter, John ends this very Gospel by saying, there wouldn't be enough books in all the world to fill all the signs that Jesus performed while He was alive. We don't know everything about the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 10 tells us that Jesus entered into this house prior and He would hang out with Mary, Martha and Lazarus. They were His friends. I was reading this week about how this really expresses the humanity of our Lord. We don't often think about this aspect, do we? We know that he got tired, we know that in the wilderness he was thirsty and hungry. We certainly know later on, the shortest verse in all the Bible appears in John 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. you know why he wept? Because his friend died. In his humanity, he had deep friendships as well. And so he knows what it's like when friendships go south. He, because he feels the depth of a friendship. He's able to minister to us as a great high priest, sympathizing with all these things, but also friendship level. He's the good shepherd. He had a deep brotherly affection for Lazarus. Here's a hint that Jesus had friendships. He went to people's homes, he had relationships with people, and one of his closest friends was Lazarus. Just again, note that the sisters don't actually ask Jesus to come. They're not, while they're concerned and they're hurting and they're, they're not bolshy and panicky and fretful, they're concerned for sure though. But they don't ask for anything else. And then Jesus responds in verse 4. Look there. When Jesus heard this, 
the word that the sisters had sent. He said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. The glory of God. I want you to skip verse 5 and look at verse 6. When he heard that his dear, dear friend whom he loved was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I mean, that is, what is that? That is so counterintuitive. If you did that or I did that, you or I would be told about how wrong that is. If we didn't even attempt to make any way of sending word back or finding the local doctor, whoever it would be, if you and I just stayed two days longer and we don't know exactly what Jesus did, but I'm sure in 24 hours he didn't always act upon this. I'm sure it was quite jarring for the people to see Jesus just stay two days longer in the place where he was. Now I want you to look at verse 5 with me. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I mentioned earlier that there's multiple words in the original Greek for love. This is not the word phileo here. This is the word agape. And we know as Christians agape. It is a deep, rich, unconditional, divine love. God loves all people created in His image. That means every person, regardless of their ethnicity, religion, whether they're male or female. He loves all people with a benevolent, you could say general love. It's real. But God has a very special love for His people. An agape love, a divine love. And so here really is a, so what? A key application from this. Can't be unloving for Jesus to delay. Because he loved them with a perfect love. Jesus delayed going to heal Lazarus because of the glory of God. All that to say this. Jesus has a purpose in your suffering. And his delay in alleviating that suffering is not evidence of his lack of love for you. Do you hear me? When you and I suffer, and we will suffer, when you and I suffer, 
and it doesn't go away. It just stays. This text is watertight divine truth and glory for you that God not removing your suffering is not evidence of His lack of love for you. In fact, His love is often made evident through Him keeping us in our suffering. How can I say such a thing? Well, we have to remember God's glory in our suffering. Some of you suffer immeasurable pain. Some of us have invisible and visible suffering that goes on. Some of us know about it, some of us don't. But here's where God's glory comes into play. We don't know God loves us because we have a perfect life with perfect health and the perfect amount of money in the bank and so on and so forth. That's, 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 that's being Peter dwelling on earthly things and not on God's things. We know God loves us because of the sending of His Son to die for us. You say... Okay, no, 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 First John, chapter 4, verse 9, the Apostle John said this, By this, the love of God was revealed to us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that, through, so, so that we may live through Him. That's how God's love is made known to us. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, being justified and having peace, that is, love of God to us. Verse 2 of Romans 5 says this, Through whom we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That too is love from God to us. Very next verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Therefore, we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Next verse, verse 5 of Romans chapter 5. And hope does not disappoint us because, listen to this, God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Jesus is saying to this precious family going through turmoil and Jesus is saying to you, each and every one of us going through turmoil, carrying various sicknesses and, and trials in our life, He is saying, He loves us, He's with us, He's doing all things for His glory and this he knows the best time to work in our lives, whether to bring sickness, whether to lift off sickness, or even whether to maintain that sickness. We must be resolute to trust Him 
even when our flesh does and certainly will fail us, we must trust that he will lift us up because he loves us. Do you understand what I'm saying? He loves us. He delays because he loves us. We must be resolute to trust him because Jesus is our best friend. In times of peace and prosperity and health, he is our best friend. In times of heartache and health troubles and poverty, he is our best friend. This is glory revealed through love. Lord, behold, I am sick. He loves me. And he will get great glory for himself through me. If I don't dwell on earthly things, but I think of the glory of God. That's enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and help us to grasp the enormity of your love for us, even when there is delay in our sufferings. To rejoice in our suffering sounds so cold when it's naked, but it's not. It's dressed in your love for us and you sending your son for us and him dying for us. That is love. Help us to take all of this and lay hold of the reality that suffering produces endurance and perseverance and character. And Lord, you are holy and your God, your glory is made evident through your character. And we just want to reflect some of that glory in our character. By having hope, a hope that doesn't disappoint us. Because you have poured out your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom you have freely given us. We believe that your son loves us. We believe that he knows the best for us. We ask to give us grace to be resolute to trust him in that. And when our flesh does fail, lift us up and help us to look to you. For you are our best friend. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.